Chapter 6, Part 1 of An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense by Thomas Reed. Chapter 6, Part 1. Of Seeing. Section 1. The Excellence and Dignity of This Faculty. The advances made in the knowledge of optics in the last age, and in the present, and chiefly the discoveries of Sir Isaac Newton, do honor not to philosophy only, but to human nature. Such discoveries ought forever to put to shame the ignoble attempts of our modern skeptics to depreciate the human understanding, and to dispirit men in the search of truth, by representing the human faculties as fit for nothing but to lead us into absurdities and contradictions. Of the faculties called the five senses, sight is without doubt the noblest. The rays of light which minister to this sense, and of which, without it, we could never have had the least conception, are the most wonderful and astonishing part of the inanimate creation. We must be satisfied of this if we consider their extreme minuteness, their inconceivable velocity, and regular variety of colors which they exhibit, the invariable laws according to which they are acted upon by other bodies, in their reflections, inflections, and refractions, without the least change of their original properties, and the facility with which they pervade bodies of great density, and of the closest texture, without resistance, without crowding or disturbing one another, without giving the least sensible impulse to the lightest bodies. The structure of the eye, and of all its appurtenances, the admirable contrivances of nature for performing all its various external and internal motions, and the variety in the eyes of different animals, suited to their several natures and ways of life, clearly demonstrate this organ to be a masterpiece of nature's work. And he must be very ignorant of what hath been discovered about it, or have a very strange cast of understanding, who can seriously doubt whether or not the rays of light and the eye were made one for the other. Section 2 sight discovers almost nothing which the blind may not comprehend the reason of this notwithstanding what hath been said of the dignity and superior nature of this faculty it is worthy of our observation that there is very little of the knowledge acquired by sight that may not be communicated to a man born blind one who never saw the light may be learned and knowing in every science even in optics and may make discoveries in every branch of philosophy. He may understand as much as another man, not only of the order, distances, and motions of the heavenly bodies, but of the nature of light, and of the laws of the reflection and refraction of its rays. He may understand distinctly how those laws produce the phenomena of the rainbow, the prism, the camera obscura, and the magic lantern and all the powers of the microscope and telescope. This is a fact sufficiently attested by experience. In order to perceive the reason of it, we must distinguish the appearance that objects make to the eye from the things suggested by that appearance, and again in the visible appearance of objects, we must distinguish the appearance of color from the appearance of extension, figure, and motion. First, then, as to the visible appearance of the figure, and motion, and extension of bodies, I conceive that a man born blind may have a distinct notion, if not of the very things, at least of something extremely like to them. May not a blind man be made to conceive that a body moving directly from the eye, or directly towards it, may appear to be at rest? and that the same motion may appear quicker or slower according as it is nearer to the eye or farther off, more direct or more oblique. May he not be made to conceive that a plane surface, in a certain position, may appear as a straight line, 
and vary its visible figure as its position or the position of the eye is varied that a circle seen obliquely will appear an ellipse and a square a rhombus or an oblong rectangle dr saunderson understood the projection of the sphere and the common rules of perspective and if he did he must have understood all that i have mentioned if there were any doubt of dr saunderson's understanding these things i could mention my having heard him say in conversation that he found great difficulty in understanding dr haley's demonstration of that proposition that the angles made by the circles of the sphere are equal to the angles made by their representatives in the stereographic projection but said he when i laid aside that demonstration and considered the proposition in my own way i saw clearly that it must be true another gentleman of undoubted credit and judgment in these matters who had part in this conversation remembers it distinctly as to the appearance of color a blind man must be more at a loss because he hath no perception that resembles it yet he may by a kind of analogy in part supply this defect to those who see a scarlet color signifies an unknown quality in bodies that makes to the eye an appearance which they are well acquainted with and have often observed to a blind man it signifies an unknown quality that makes to the eye an appearance which he is acquainted with but he can conceive the eye to be variously affected by different colors as the nose is by different smells or the ear by different sounds thus he can conceive scarlet to differ from blue as the sound of a trumpet does from that of a drum or the smell of an orange differs from that of an apple it is impossible to know whether a scarlet color has the same appearance to me which it hath to another man and if the appearances of it to different persons differed as much as color does from sound they might never be able to discover this difference. Hence it appears obvious that a blind man might talk long about colors distinctly and pertinently, and if you were to examine him in the dark about the nature, composition, and beauty of them, he might be able to answer, so as not to betray his defect. We have seen how far a blind man may go in the knowledge of the appearances which things make to the eye. As to the things which are suggested by them, or inferred from them, although he could never discover them of himself, yet he may understand them perfectly by the information of others. And everything of this kind that enters into our minds by the eye may enter into his by the ear. Thus, for instance, he could never, if left to the direction of his own faculties, have dreamed of any such thing as light. But he can be informed of everything we know about it. He can conceive as distinctly as we the minuteness and velocity of its rays, their various degrees of refrangibility and reflexibility, and all the magical powers and virtues of that wonderful element. He could never of himself have found out that there are such bodies as the sun, moon, and stars, but he may be informed of all the noble discoveries of astronomers about their motions and the laws of nature by which they are regulated. Thus it appears that there is very little knowledge got by the eye which may not be communicated by language to those who have no eyes. If we should suppose that it were as uncommon for men to see as it is to be born blind, would not the few who had this rare gift appear as prophets and inspired teachers to the many? We conceive inspiration to give a man no new faculty but to communicate to him in a new way and by extraordinary means what the faculties common to mankind can apprehend and what he can communicate to others by ordinary means on the supposition we have made sight would appear to the blind very similar to this for the few who had this gift could communicate the knowledge acquired by it to those who had it not they could not, indeed, convey to the blind any distinct notion of the manner in which they acquired this knowledge. A ball and socket would seem to a blind man, in this case, as improper an instrument for acquiring such a variety and extent of knowledge as a dream or a vision. The manner in which a man who sees discerns so many things by means of the eye 
is as unintelligible to the blind as the manner in which a man may be inspired with knowledge by the Almighty is to us. Ought the blind man, therefore, without examination, to treat all pretenses to the gift of seeing as imposture? Might he not, if he were candid and tractable, find reasonable evidence of the reality of this gift in others, and draw great advantages from it to himself? The distinction we have made between the visible appearances of the objects of sight, and things suggested by them, is necessary to give us a just notion of the intention of nature in giving us eyes. If we attend duly to the operation of our mind in the use of this faculty, we shall perceive that the visible appearance of objects is hardly ever regarded by us. It is not at all made an object of thought or reflection, but serves only as a sign to introduce to the mind something else, which may be distinctly conceived by those who never saw. Thus the visible appearance of things in my room varies almost every hour, according as the day is clear or cloudy, as the sun is in the east, or south, or west, and as my eye is in one part of the room or in another. But I never think of these variations otherwise than as signs of morning, noon, or night, of a clear or cloudy sky. A book or a chair has a different appearance to the eye in every different distance and position, yet we conceive it to be still the same, and, overlooking the appearance, we immediately conceive the real figure, distance, and position of the body, of which its visible or perspective appearance is a sign and indication. When I see a man at the distance of ten yards, and afterwards see him at the distance of a hundred yards, his visible appearance in its length, breadth, and all its linear proportions is ten times less in the last case than it is in the first. Yet I do not conceive him one inch diminished by this diminution of his visible figure. Nay, I do not in the least attend to this diminution, even when I draw from it the conclusion of his being at a greater distance. For such is the subtlety of the mind's operation in this case that we draw the conclusion without perceiving that ever the premises entered into the mind. A thousand such instances might be produced in order to show that the visible appearances of objects are intended by nature only as signs or indications, and that the mind passes instantly to the things signified, without making the least reflection upon the sign, or even perceiving that there is any such thing. It is, in a way, somewhat similar that the sounds of a language, after it has become familiar, are overlooked, and we attend only to the things signified by them. It is, therefore, a just and important observation of the Bishop of Cloyne that the visible appearance of objects is a kind of language used by nature to inform us of their distance, magnitude, and figure and this observation hath been very happily applied by that ingenious writer to the solution of some phenomena in optics, which had before perplexed the greatest masters in that science. The same observation is further improved by the judicious Dr. Smith in his optics, for explaining the apparent figure of the heavens, and the apparent distances and magnitude of objects seen with glasses, or by the naked eye. Avoiding as much as possible the repetition of what hath been said by these excellent writers, we shall avail ourselves of the distinction between the signs that nature useth in this visual language, and the things signified by them, and in what remains to be said of sight, shall first make some observations upon the signs. Section 3. Of the Visible Appearances of Objects in this section we must speak of things which are never made the object of reflection, though almost every moment presented to the mind. Nature intended them only for signs, and in the whole course of life they are put to no other use. The mind has acquired a confirmed and inveterate habit of inattention to them, for they no sooner appear than, quick as lightning, the thing signified succeeds, and engrosses all our regard. They have no name in language, and although we are conscious of them when they pass through the mind, yet their passage is so quick, and so familiar, that it is absolutely unheeded. Nor do they leave any footsteps of themselves, 
either in the memory or imagination. That this is the case with regard to the sensations of touch hath been shown in the last chapter, and it holds no less with regard to the visible appearances of objects. I cannot, therefore, entertain the hope of being intelligible to those readers who have not, by pains and practice, acquired the habit of distinguishing the appearance of objects to the eye from the judgment which we form by sight of their color, distance, magnitude, and figure. The only profession in life wherein it is necessary to make this distinction is that of painting. The painter hath occasion for an abstraction, with regard to visible objects, somewhat similar to that which we here require, and this indeed is the most difficult part of his art. For it is evident that if he could fix in his imagination the visible appearance of objects without confounding it with the things signified by that appearance, it would be as easy for him to paint from the life, and to give every figure its proper shading and relief, and its perspective proportions, as it is to paint from a copy. Perspective, shading, giving relief, and colouring, are nothing else but copying the appearance which things make to the eye. We may, therefore, borrow some light on the subject of visible appearance from this art. Let one look upon any familiar object, such as a book, at different distances and in different positions. Is he not able to affirm upon the testimony of his sight that it is the same book, the same object, whether seen at the distance of one foot or ten, whether in one position or another, that the color is the same, the dimensions the same, and the figure the same as far as the eye can judge? This surely must be acknowledged. The same individual object is presented to the mind, only placed at different distances and in different positions. Let me ask, in the next place, whether this object has the same appearance to the eye in those different distances. Infallibly it hath not. For, first, however, certain our judgment may be that the color is the same, it is as certain that it hath not the same appearance at different distances. There is a certain degradation of the color, and a certain confusion and indistinctness of the minute parts, which is the natural consequence of the removal of the object to a greater distance. Those that are not painters, or critics in painting, overlook this, and cannot easily be persuaded that the color of the same object hath a different appearance at the distance of one foot and of ten, in the shade and in the light. But the masters in painting know how, by the degradation of the color, and the confusion of the minute parts, figures which are upon the same canvas, and at the same distance from the eye, may be made to represent objects which are at the most unequal distances. They know how to make the objects appear to be of the same color, by making their pictures really of different colors, according to their distances or shades. Secondly, Every one who is acquainted with the rules of perspective knows that the appearance of the figure of the book must vary in every different position. Yet, if you ask a man who has no notion of perspective whether the figure of it does not appear to his eye to be the same in all its different positions, he can with a good conscience affirm that it does. He hath learned to make allowance for the variety of visible figures arising from the difference of positions and to draw the proper conclusions from it. But he draws these conclusions so readily and habitually as to lose sight of the premises, and therefore, where he hath made the same conclusion, he conceives the visible appearance must have been the same. Thirdly, let us consider the apparent magnitude or dimensions of the book. Whether I view it at the distance of one foot or of ten feet, it seems to be about seven inches long five broad and one thick. I can judge of these dimensions very nearly by the eye, and I judge them to be the same at both distances. But yet it is certain that at the distance of one foot its visible length and breadth is about ten times as great as at the distance of ten feet, and consequently its surface is about a hundred times as great. This great change of apparent magnitude is altogether overlooked and every man is apt to imagine that it appears to the eye of the same size at both distances. 
Further, when I look at the book, it seems plainly to have three dimensions, of length, breadth, and thickness. But it is certain that the visible appearance hath no more than two, and can be exactly represented upon a canvas which hath only length and breadth. In the last place, does not every man by sight perceive the distance of the book from his eye? Can he not affirm with certainty that in one case it is not above one foot distance, and in another it is ten? Nevertheless, it appears certain that distance from the eye is no immediate object of sight. There are certain things in the visible appearance which are signs of distance from the eye, and from which, as we shall afterwards show, we learn by experience to judge of that distance within certain limits. But it seems beyond doubt that a man born blind and suddenly made to see could form no judgment at first of the distance of the object which he saw. The young man couched by Cheseldon thought at first that everything he saw touched his eye, and learned only by experience to judge of the distance of visible objects. I have entered into this long detail in order to show that the visible appearance of an object is extremely different from the notion of it which experience teaches us to form by sight, and to enable the reader to attend to the visible appearance of color, figure, and extension in visible things, which is no common object of thought, but must be carefully attended to by those who would enter into the philosophy of this sense, or would comprehend what shall be said upon it. To a man newly made to see, the visible appearance of objects would be the same as to us, but he would see nothing at all of their real dimensions, as we do. He could form no conjecture, by means of his sight only, how many inches or feet they were in length, breadth, or thickness. He could perceive little or nothing of their real figure, nor could he discern that this was a cube, that a sphere, that this was a cone, and that a cylinder his eye could not inform him that this object was near and that more remote. The habit of a man or of a woman which appeared to us of one uniform color, variously folded and shaded, would present to his eye neither fold nor shade, but variety of color. In a word, his eyes, though ever so perfect, would at first give him almost no information of things without him. They would indeed present the same appearance to him as they do to us and speak the same language. But to him it is an unknown language, and therefore he would attend only to the signs, without knowing the signification of them, whereas to us it is a language perfectly familiar, and therefore we take no notice of the signs, but attend only to the thing signified by them. Section 4. That color is a quality of bodies, not a sensation of the mind. By color, all men who have not been tutored by modern philosophy understand not a sensation of the mind, which can have no existence when it is not perceived, but a quality or modification of bodies, which continues to be the same whether it is seen or not. The scarlet rose, which is before me, is still a scarlet rose when I shut my eyes, and was so at midnight when no eye saw it. The color remains when the appearance ceases. It remains the same when the appearance changes. For when I view this scarlet rose through a pair of green spectacles, the appearance is changed, but I do not conceive the color of the rose changed. To a person in the jaundice it is still another appearance, but he is easily convinced that the change is in his eye, and not in the color of the object. Every different degree of light makes it have a different appearance, and total darkness takes away all appearance but makes not the least change in the color of the body. We may, by a variety of optical experiments, change the appearance or figure and magnitude in a body, as well as that of color. We may make one body appear to be ten. But all men believe that as a multiplying glass does not really produce ten guineas out of one, nor a microscope turn a guinea into a ten-pound piece, so neither does a colored glass change the real color of the object seen through it, when it changes the appearance of that color. The common language of mankind shows evidently that we ought to distinguish between the color of a body, which is conceived to be a fixed and permanent quality in that body, 
and the appearance of that color to the eye, which may be varied a thousand ways, by a variation of the light, of the medium, or of the eye itself. The permanent color of the body is the cause, which, by the mediation of various kinds or degrees of light, and of various transparent bodies interposed, produces all this variety of appearances. When a colored body is presented, there is a certain apparition to the eye, or to the mind, which we have called the appearance of color. Mr. Locke calls it an idea, and indeed it may be called so with the greatest propriety. This idea can have no existence but when it is perceived. It is a kind of thought, and can only be the act of a percipient or thinking being. By the constitution of our nature, we are led to conceive this idea as a sign of something external, and are impatient till we learn its meaning. A thousand experiments for this purpose are made every day by children, even before they come to the use of reason. They look at things, they handle them, they put them in various positions, at different distances, and in different lights. The ideas of sight, by these means, come to be associated with, and readily to suggest, things external, and altogether unlike them. In particular, that idea which we have called the appearance of color, suggests the conception and belief of some unknown quality in the body which occasions the idea, and it is to this quality, and not to the idea, that we give the name of color. The various colors, although in their nature equally unknown, are easily distinguished when we think or speak of them, by being associated with the ideas which they excite. In like manner, gravity, magnetism, and electricity, although all unknown qualities, are distinguished by their different effects. As we grow up, the mind acquires a habit of passing so rapidly from the ideas of sight to the external things suggested by them, that the ideas are not in the least attended to, nor have they names given them in common language. When we think or speak of any particular color, however simple the notion may seem to be, which is presented to the imagination, it is really in some sort compounded. It involves an unknown cause, and an unknown effect. The name of color belongs indeed to the cause only, and not to the effect. But as the cause is unknown, we can form no distinct conception of it, but by its relation to the known effect. And therefore both go together in the imagination, and are so closely united that they are mistaken for one simple object of thought. When I would conceive those colors of bodies which we call scarlet and blue, if I conceived them only as unknown qualities, I could perceive no distinction between the one and the other. I must therefore, for the sake of distinction, join to each of them in my imagination some effect or some relation that is peculiar. And the most obvious distinction is the appearance which one and the other makes to the eye. Hence the appearance is in the imagination so closely united with the quality called a scarlet color, that they are apt to be mistaken for one and the same thing, although they are in reality so different and so unlike that one is an idea in the mind, and the other is a quality of the body. I conclude, then, that color is not a sensation, but a secondary quality of bodies, in the sense we have already explained, that it is a certain power or virtue in bodies, that in fair daylight exhibits to the eye an appearance which is very familiar to us, although it hath no name. Color differs from other secondary qualities in this, that whereas the name of the quality is sometimes given to the sensation which indicates it, and is occasioned by it, we never, as far as I can judge, give the name of color to the sensation, but to the quality only. Perhaps the reason of this may be, that the appearance of the same color are so various and changeable, according to the different modifications of the light, of the medium, and of the eye, that language could not afford names for them. And, indeed, they are so little interesting, that they are never attended to, but serve only as signs to introduce the things signified by them. Nor ought it to appear incredible, that appearance so frequent and so familiar should have no names, nor be made objects of thought, since we have before shown that this is true of many sensations of touch, 
which are no less frequent nor less familiar. Section 5. An Inference from the Preceding. From what hath been said about color we may infer two things. The first is that one of the most remarkable paradoxes of modern philosophy, which hath been universally esteemed as a great discovery, is in reality, when examined to the bottom, nothing else but an abuse of words. The paradox I mean is, that color is not a quality of bodies, but only an idea in the mind. We have shown that the word color, as used by the vulgar, cannot signify an idea in the mind, but a permanent quality of body. We have shown that there is really a permanent quality of body, to which the common use of this word exactly agrees. Can any stronger proof be desired that this quality is that to which the vulgar give the name of color? If it should be said that this quality to which we give the name of color is unknown to the vulgar, and therefore can have no name among them, I answer, it is indeed known only by its effects, that is, by its exciting a certain idea in us. But are there not numberless qualities of bodies which are known only by their effects, to which notwithstanding we find it necessary to give names? Medicine alone might furnish us with a hundred instances of this kind. Do not the words astringent, narcotic, epispastic, caustic, and innumerable others signify qualities of bodies which are known only by their effects upon animal bodies. Why then should not the vulgar give a name to a quality whose effects are every moment perceived by their eyes? We have all the reason, therefore, that the nature of the thing admits, to think that the vulgar apply the name of color to that quality of bodies which excites in us what the philosophers call the idea of color and that there is such a quality in bodies, all philosophers allow, who allow that there is any such thing as body. Philosophers have thought fit to leave that quality of bodies, which the vulgar call color, without a name, and to give the name of color to the idea or appearance to which, as we have shown, the vulgar give no name, because they never make it an object of thought or reflection. Hence it appears that when philosophers affirm that color is not in bodies, but in the mind, and the vulgar affirm that color is not in the mind, but is a quality of bodies, there is no difference between them about things, but only about the meaning of a word. The vulgar have undoubted right to give names to things which they are daily conversant about, and philosophers seem justly chargeable with an abuse of language, when they change the meaning of a common word without giving warning. If it is a good rule to think with philosophers and speak with the vulgar, it must be right to speak with the vulgar when we think with them, and not to shock them by philosophical paradoxes, which, when put into common language, express only the common sense of mankind. If you ask a man, that is no philosopher, what color is, or what makes one body appear white, another scarlet, he cannot tell. He leaves that inquiry to philosophers, and can embrace any hypothesis about it except that our modern philosophers, who affirm that color is not in body, but only in the mind. Nothing appears more shocking to his apprehension than that visible objects should have no color, and that color should be in that which he conceives to be invisible. Yet this strange paradox is not only universally received, but considered as one of the noblest discoveries of modern philosophy. The ingenious Addison, in The Spectator, number 413, speaks thus of it. I have here supposed that my reader is acquainted with the great modern discovery which is at present universally acknowledged by all the inquirers into natural philosophy, namely, that light and colors, as apprehended by the imagination, are only ideas in the mind, and not qualities that have any existence in matter. As this is a truth which has been proved incontestably by many modern philosophers, and is indeed one of the finest speculations in that science, if the English reader would see the notion explained at large, he may find it in the eighth chapter of the second book of Locke's Essay on Human Understanding. Mr. Locke and Mr. Addison are writers who have deserved so well of mankind, 
that one must feel some uneasiness in differing from them, and would wish to ascribe all the merit that is due to a discovery upon which they put so high a value. And, indeed, it is just to acknowledge that Locke and other modern philosophers on the subject of secondary qualities have the merit of distinguishing more accurately than those that went before them between the sensations of the mind and that constitution or quality of bodies which gives occasion to the sensation. They have shown clearly that these two things are not only distinct, but altogether unlike, that there is no similitude between the effluvia of an odorous body and the sensation of smell, or between the vibrations of a sounding body and the sensation of sound, that there can be no resemblance between the feeling of heat and the constitution of the heated body which occasions it, or between the appearance which a colored body makes to the eye and the texture of the body which causes that appearance. Nor was the merit small of distinguishing these things accurately, because, however different and unlike in their nature, they have been always associated in the imagination, as to coalesce, as it were, into one two-faced form, which, from its amphibious nature, could not justly be appropriated, either to body or mind, and until it was properly distinguished into its different constituent parts, it was impossible to assign to either their just shares in it. None of the ancient philosophers had made this distinction. The followers of Democritus and Epicurus conceived the forms of heat and sound and color to be in the mind only and that our senses fallaciously represented them as being in bodies. The peripatetics imagined that those forms are really in bodies, and that the images of them are conveyed to the mind by our senses. The one system made the senses naturally fallacious and deceitful. The other made the qualities of body to resemble the sensations of the mind. Nor was it possible to find a third without making the distinction we have mentioned by which indeed the errors of both these ancient systems are avoided, and we are not left under the hard necessity of believing either, on the one hand, that our sensations are like the qualities of body, or, on the other, that God hath given us one faculty to deceive us, and another to detect the cheat. We desire, therefore, with pleasure to do justice to the doctrine of Locke, and other modern philosophers, with regard to color and other secondary qualities, and to ascribe to it its due merit, while we beg leave to censure the language in which they have expressed their doctrine. When they had explained and established the distinction between the appearance which color makes to the eye, and the modification of the colored body, which by the laws of nature causes that appearance, the question was whether to give the name of color to the cause or to the effect. By giving it as they have done to the effect, they set philosophy apparently in opposition to common sense, and expose it to the ridicule of the vulgar. But had they given the name color to the cause, as they ought to have done, they must then have affirmed, with the vulgar, that color is a quality of bodies, and that there is neither color nor anything like it in the mind. Their language, as well as their sentiments, would have been perfectly agreeable to the common apprehensions of mankind, and true philosophy would have joined hands with common sense. As Locke was no enemy to common sense, it may be presumed that in this instance, as in some others, he was seduced by some received hypothesis, and that this was actually the case will appear in the following section. Section 6 that none of our sensations are resemblances of any of the qualities of bodies. A second inference is, that although color is really a quality of body, yet it is not represented to the mind by an idea or sensation that resembles it. On the contrary, it is suggested by an idea which does not in the least resemble it. And this inference is applicable not to color only, but to all the qualities of body which we have examined. It deserves to be remarked that in the analysis we have hitherto given of the operations of the five senses, and of the qualities of bodies discovered by them, no instance hath occurred either of any sensation which resembles any quality of body, or of any quality of body whose image or resemblance is conveyed to the mind by means of the sense. 
there is no phenomenon in nature more unaccountable than the intercourse that is carried on between the mind and the external world there is no phenomenon which philosophical spirits have shown greater avidity to pry into and to resolve it is agreed by all that this intercourse is carried on by means of the senses and this satisfies the vulgar curiosity but not the philosophic philosophers must have some system some hypothesis that shows the manner in which our senses make us acquainted with external things all the fertility of human invention seems to have produced only one hypothesis for this purpose which therefore hath been universally received and that is that the mind like a mirror receives the images of things from without by means of the senses so that their use must be to convey these images to, into the mind whether to these images of external things in the mind we give the name of sensible forms or sensible species with the peripatetics or the name of ideas of sensations with locke or whether with later philosophers we distinguish sensations which are immediately conveyed by the sense from ideas of sensations which are faint copies of our sensations retained in the memory and imagination these are only differences about words the hypothesis i have mentioned is common to all these different systems the necessary and allowed consequence of this hypothesis is that no material thing nor any quality of material things can be conceived by us or made an object of thought until its image is conveyed to the mind by means of the senses we shall examine this hypothesis particularly afterwards and at this time only observe that in consequence of it one would naturally expect that to every quality and attribute of body we know or can conceive there should be a sensation corresponding which is the image and resemblance of that quality and that the sensations which have no similitude or resemblance to the body or to any of its qualities should give us no conception of a material world or of anything belonging to it these things might be expected as the natural consequence of the hypothesis we have mentioned now we have considered in this and the preceding chapters extension figure solidity motion hardness roughness as well as color heat and cold sound taste and smell we have endeavored to show that our nature and constitution lead us to conceive these as qualities of body as all mankind have always conceived them to be we have likewise examined with great attention the various sensations we have by means of the five senses and are not able to find among them all one single image of body or of any of its qualities from whence then come these images of body and of its qualities into the mind let philosophers resolve this question all i can say is that they come not by the senses i am sure that by proper attention and care i may know my sensations and be able to affirm with certainty what they resemble and what they do not resemble i have examined them one by one and compared them with matter and its qualities and i cannot find one of them that confesses a resembling feature a truth so evident as this that our sensations are not images of matter or of any of its qualities ought not to yield to a hypothesis such as that above mentioned however ancient or however universally received by philosophers nor can there be any amicable union between the two this will appear by some reflections upon the spirit of the ancient and modern philosophy concerning sensation during the reign of the peripatetic philosophy our sensations were not minutely or accurately examined the attention of philosophers as well as of the vulgar was turned to the things signified by them therefore in consequence of the common hypothesis it was taken for granted that all the sensations we have from external things are the forms or images of these external things and thus the truth we have mentioned yielded entirely to the hypothesis and was altogether suppressed by it descartes gave a noble example of turning our attention inward and scrutinizing our sensations and this example hath been worthily followed by modern philosophers 
particularly by Malebranc, Locke, Barclay, and Hume. The effect of this scrutiny hath been a gradual discovery of the truth above mentioned, to wit, the dissimilitude between the sensations of our minds and the qualities or attributes of an insentient inert substance, such as we conceive matter to be. But this valuable and useful discovery in its different stages hath been still unhappily united to the ancient hypothesis, and from this inauspicious match of opinions so unfriendly and discordant in their natures have arisen these monsters of paradox and scepticism with which the modern philosophy is too justly chargeable. Locke saw clearly, and proved incontestably, that the sensations we have by taste, smell, and hearing, as well as the sensations of color, heat, and cold, are not resemblances of anything in bodies. And in this he agrees with Descartes and Malebranche. Joining these opinions with the hypothesis, it follows necessarily that three senses of the five are cut off from giving us any intelligence of the material world, as being altogether inept for that office. Smell and taste, and sound as well as color and heat, can have no more relation to body than anger or gratitude, nor ought the former to be called qualities of body, whether primary or secondary, any more than the latter. For it was natural and obvious to argue thus from that hypothesis. If heat and color and sound are real qualities of body and sensations, by which we perceive them, must be resemblances of those qualities. But the sensations are not resemblances, therefore those are not real qualities of body. We see then that Locke, having found that the ideas of secondary qualities are no resemblances, was compelled, by a hypothesis common to all philosophers, to deny that they are real qualities of body. It is more difficult to assign a reason why, after this, he should call them secondary qualities. For this name, if I mistake not, was of his invention. Surely he did not mean that they were secondary qualities of the mind, and I do not see with what propriety, or even by what tolerable license, he could call them secondary qualities of body, after finding that they were no qualities of body at all. In this he seems to have sacrificed to common sense, and to have been led by her authority, even in opposition to his hypothesis. The same sovereign mistress of our opinions that led this philosopher to call those things secondary qualities of body, which according to his principles and reasonings were no qualities of body at all, hath led not the vulgar of all ages only, but philosophers also, and even the disciples of Locke, to believe them to be real qualities of body. She hath led them to investigate by experiments the nature of color, and sound, and heat in bodies. Nor hath this investigation been fruitless, as it must have been, if there had been no such thing in bodies. On the contrary, it hath produced very noble and useful discoveries, which make very considerable part of natural philosophy. If then natural philosophy be not a dream, there is something in bodies which we call color, and heat, and sound. And if this be so, the hypothesis from which the contrary is concluded must be false, for the argument leading to a false conclusion recoils against the hypothesis from which it was drawn, and thus directs its force backwards. If the qualities of body were known to us only by sensations that resemble them, then color and sound, and heat could be no qualities of body. But these are real qualities of body, and therefore the qualities of body are not known only by means of sensations that resemble them. But to proceed. What Locke had proved with regard to the sensations we have by smell, taste, and hearing, Bishop Berkeley proved no less unanswerably with regard to all our other sensations to wit, that none of them can in the least resemble the qualities of a lifeless and insentient being, such as matter is conceived to be. Mr. Hume hath confirmed this by his authority and reasoning. This opinion surely looks with a very malign aspect upon the old hypothesis. Yet that hypothesis hath still been retained, and conjoined with it. And what a brood of monsters hath this produced! The first-born of this union, and perhaps the most harmless, was, 
that the secondary qualities of body were mere sensations of the mind. To pass by Malebranche's notion of seeing all things in the ideas of the divine mind, as a foreigner never naturalized in this island, the next was Berkeley's system, that extension and figure and hardness and motion, that land and sea and houses and our own bodies, as well as those of our wives and children and friends, are nothing but ideas of the mind and that there is nothing existing in nature but minds and ideas. The progeny that followed is still more frightful, so that it is surprising that one can be found who had the courage to act the midwife, to rear it up, and to usher it into the world. No causes nor effects, no substances, material or spiritual, no evidence, even in mathematical demonstration, no liberty nor active power, nothing existing in nature but impressions and ideas following each other without time place or subject surely no age ever produced such a system of opinions justly deduced with great acuteness perspicuity and elegance from a principle universally received the hypothesis we have mentioned is the father of them all the dissimilitude of our sensations and feelings to external things is the innocent mother of most of them as it happens sometimes in arithmetical operation that two errors balance one another, so that the conclusion is little or nothing affected by them, but when one of them is corrected and the other left, we are led farther from the truth than by both together. So it seems to have happened in the peripatetic philosophy of sensation compared with the modern. The peripatetics adopted two errors, but the last served as a corrective to the first, and rendered it mild and gentle, so that their system had no tendency to skepticism. The moderns have retained the first of those errors, but have gradually detected and corrected the last. The consequence hath been that the light we have struck out hath created darkness, and skepticism hath advanced hand in hand with knowledge, spreading its melancholy gloom first over the material world, and last over the whole face of nature. Such a phenomenon as this is apt to stagger even the lovers of light and knowledge while its cause is latent, but when that is detected it may give hopes that this darkness shall not be everlasting, but that it shall be succeeded by a more permanent light. Section 8. Of Visible Figure and Extension Although there is no resemblance, nor, as far as we know, any necessary connection, between that quality in a body which we call its color, and the appearance which that color makes to the eye, it is quite otherwise with regard to its figure and magnitude. There is certainly a resemblance, and a necessary connection, between the visible figure and magnitude of a body, and its real figure and magnitude. No man can give a reason why a scarlet color affects the eye in the manner it does. No man can be sure that it affects his eye in the same manner as it affects the eye of another, and that it has the same appearance to him as it has to another man. But we can assign a reason why a circle, placed obliquely to the eye, should appear in the form of an ellipse. The visible figure, magnitude, and position may, by mathematical reasoning, be deduced from the real, and it may be demonstrated that every eye that sees distinctly and perfectly must in the same situation see it under this form and no other. Nay, we may venture to affirm that a man born blind, if he were instructed in mathematics, would be able to determine the visible figure of a body when its real figure, distance, and position are given. Dr. Saunderson understood the projection of the sphere and perspective. Now, I require no more knowledge in a blind man, in order to his being able to determine the visible figure of bodies, than that he can project the outline of a given body upon the surface of a hollow sphere, whose center is in the eye. This projection is the visible figure he wants, for it is the same figure with that which is projected upon the tunica retina in vision. A blind man can conceive lines drawn from every point of the object to the center of the eye, making angles. He can conceive that the length of the object will appear greater, or less, 
in proportion to the angle which it subtends at the eye, and that in like manner the breadth and in general the distance of any one point of the object from any other point will appear greater or less in proportion to the angles which those distances subtend. He can easily be made to conceive that the visible appearance has no thickness any more than a projection of the sphere or a perspective draught. He may be informed that the eye, until it is aided by experience, does not represent one object as nearer or more remote than another. Indeed, he would probably conjecture this of himself, and be apt to think that the rays of light must make the same impression upon the eye, whether they come from a greater or less distance. These are all the principles which we suppose our blind mathematician to have, and these he may certainly acquire by information and reflection. It is no less certain that from these principles, having given the real figure and magnitude of a body, and its position and distance with regard to the eye, he can find out its visible figure and magnitude. He can demonstrate, in general, from these principles that the visible figure of all bodies will be the same with that of their projection upon the surface of a hollow sphere when the eye is placed in the centre. And he can demonstrate that their visible magnitude will be greater or less, according as their projection occupies a greater or less part of the surface of this sphere. To set this matter in another light, let us distinguish betwixt the position of objects with regard to the eye, and their distance from it. Objects that lie in the same right line drawn from the center of the eye have the same position, however different their distances from the eye may be. But objects which lie in different right lines drawn from the eye's center have a different position, and this difference of position is greater or less in proportion to the angle made at the eye by the right lines mentioned. Having thus defined what we mean by the position of objects with regard to the eye, it is evident that as the real figure of a body consists in the situation of its several parts with regard to one another, so its visible figure consists in the position of its several parts with regard to the eye. And as he that hath a distinct conception of the situation of the parts of the body with regard to one another must have a distinct conception of its real figure, so he that conceives distinctly the position of its several parts with regard to the eye must have a distinct conception of its visible figure. Now, there is nothing surely to hinder a blind man from conceiving the position of the several parts of a body with regard to the eye any more than from conceiving their situation with regard to one another, and therefore I conclude that a blind man may attain a distinct conception of the visible figure of bodies. Although we think the arguments that have been offered are sufficient to prove that a blind man may conceive the visible extension and figure of bodies, yet in order to remove some prejudices against this truth, it will be of use to compare the notion which a blind mathematician might form to himself of visible figure with that which is presented to the eye in vision, and to observe wherein they differ. First, visible figure is never presented to the eye but in conjunction with color, and although there be no connection between them from the nature of things, yet having so invariably kept company together, we are hardly able to disjoin them even in our imagination. What mightily increases this difficulty is that we have never been accustomed to make visible figure an object of thought. It is only used as a sign and having served this purpose, passes away without leaving a trace behind. The drawer or designer, whose business it is to hunt this fugitive form, and to take a copy of it, finds how difficult his task is, after many years' labor and practice. Happy if at last he can acquire the art of arresting it in his imagination until he can delineate it. For then it is evident that he must be able to draw as accurately from the life as from a copy. But how few of the professed masters of designing are ever able to arrive at this degree of perfection? It is no wonder, then, that we should find so great difficulty in conceiving this form apart from its constant associate, when it is so difficult to conceive it at all. But our blind man's notion of visible figure will not be associated with color, 
of which he hath no conception. But it will perhaps be associated with hardness, or smoothness, with which he is acquainted by touch. These different associations are apt to impose upon us, and to make things seem different, which in reality are the same. Secondly, the blind man forms the notion of visible figure to himself by thought, and by mathematical reasoning from principles. Whereas the man that sees has it presented to his eye at once, without any labor, without any reasoning, by a kind of inspiration. A man may form to himself the notion of a parabola or a cycloid from the mathematical definition of those figures, although he had never seen them drawn or delineated. Another who knows nothing of the mathematical definition of the figures may see them delineated on paper, or feel them cut out on wood. Each may have a distinct conception of the figures, one by mathematical reasoning, the other by sense. Now, the blind man forms his notion of visible figure in the same manner as the first of these formed his notion of a parabola or a cycloid, which he never saw. Third, visible figure leads the man that sees directly to the conception of the real figure of which it is a sign. But the blind man's thoughts move in a contrary direction, for he must first know the real figure, distance and situation of the body, and from thence he slowly traces out the visible figure by mathematical reasoning. Nor does his nature lead him to conceive this visible figure as a sign. It is a creature of his own reason and imagination. End of chapter 6, part 1 Recording by Stephen Reynolds, Durham, Connecticut